Hello and welcome to the podcast from That's Not My Age. I'm Alison Walsh. I'm a journalist, author and blogger and I'd like to invite you to join this conversation. I'll be interviewing lots of brilliant people about life and style and getting older. It's a grown-up guide. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the That's Not My Age podcast. Today we have author, screenwriter, script editor, actor, multi-talented Emma Kennedy. Have I missed anything out, Emma? I think you've missed out the fact that that the thing I am best at in all of the world is actually conquers, but I'll let that (laughs) one go. Okay, also... She's brilliant on Twitter. Thank you for going ahead with today's uh, episode because I know COVID has entered your household. Yes, COVID has entered the, the, the household. Yes, my, my wife is a, a music manager and I won't, I won't name the, uh, the superstar that has given her COVID, but the superstar is, is about, was about to go on tour and but they, they all went down, her and, and, and her uh, one of her band uh, and my wife uh, have now fallen fallen hostage to COVID. So we've 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 she's now living upstairs and I'm living downstairs in the in the almost desperate hope that I don't go down with it. Yeah. Have you had it? Have you had it before? No. I'm not sure. Yeah. If I did have it, I think I had it before we knew about it, like just before we knew about it. I was very spectacularly unwell with all the things that we then associated with COVID, but in January 2020, every single member of my my family and my extended family, we all went down with this terrible, terrible illness. And I, I was on the cusp of going to A&E. I was that bad. And the only reason I didn't go to A&E, because I couldn't breathe, the only reason I didn't go to A&E, and doesn't this just tell you everything you need to know about me, was because the, the morning I decided I probably needed to go in A&E, we, we were supposed to go on holiday to Wales. So I thought, oh, well, it, it's fine. I'll just go on holiday to Wales instead of going to A&E because I can't breathe. Wales will sort me out. And it did. <laughs> yeah, some, some fresh air will Yes. Was the, was the uh, superstar you mentioned... The superstar that sang at your mum's funeral. It's almost like you're a detective who has properly read my book. I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> I'll take that as a yes then. Okay, I'll say I'll say nothing though. Yeah, say no more. Ah, <laughs> uh, anyway, about your book. So, Emma, if you want, do you want to tell us a little bit about letters from Brenda? Uh, yes. So, my mother died eight years ago and I was left as 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 people often are with very complicated uh, and tangled feelings about her and her death and things had happened on the day that she died that had really properly damaged me um and I couldn't shake it off and but I'd had a very complicated relationship with her because she'd suffered from an undiagnosed mental illness for all of her life and for the best part of three years, I, I, I was still consumed by it and, and her and what had happened and what hadn't been done for her in her lifetime. And my father uh, sold the family home. This was three years after she had, had died. And the new owners found in the loft two old leather suitcases and in them were 75 letters from my mother to me. And I took them and I read them and that was sort of the start of the process but it took me another four years to to really make the decision of do you know what no I, I'm going to try and get to the bottom of this so what Letters from Brenda is is really it's a sort of a detective story about me trying to find out once and for all what my mother had suffered with for all of her life. Yeah, you said that I think a lot of the letters are from when she was travelling around yes. Europe mostly and to France. Yes. And you, and you said that she at home she's always on edge, but when she's travelling she could finally relax. Yeah, th- th- there, were, there were two different Brendas. There was um, the good Brenda 
who was the most exciting person you could ever meet in your life. She was incredibly charismatic. She was very funny. Um, if she entered a room, she would fill it. She was, she was like she was like lightning. She was incredible. But there was also the bad Brenda, um, who was impossible and who was given to violence and who was very unpredictable and terrifying. And she could switch between those two people, you know, at the turn of a, a, a tuppence. Um, and I found that very difficult to cope with as a, as a child and, and sort of, and then it's, it's that thing, I suppose, of, of how you try and get to grips with, with a mental illness that you don't know what it is and you're not, and also you're not allowed to speak about it. So, but, but I think for her home, which was also something of an obsession for her, she was obsessed with the, the house that she found herself in um, for most of, of her adult life. And it was that was tied up with all the paranoia that came with her her illness. So that when she went away from it, that was like a release from that paranoia and that feeling that she was being watched or or bugged or listened to or or conspired against. And so when she went away, she was she was always the good Brenda. There there was always you know there was there was light. There was excitement for her. Um, and she loved meeting strangers. I think that was the other thing for her about travel. She was absolutely brilliant with people she'd never met before and probably would never meet again. And the letters are hilarious. He is like re- she is, like you said, charismatic and funny. Yeah, very vocal. I mean, there's always They're there's brilliant. always there's, and there's always an incident. There's always something happens. Yes. Like I think there's a ghost or yes. Or, or owls or, or whatever it is. Yeah, this, this is something that I've obviously inherited from her in the sense that in my, my first book, The Tent, The Bucket and Me, is entirely about my family's disastrous attempts to go on holiday in the 1970s. And it, it's, it, I think it's, it's that universal truth that, that everyone will have been away on holidays that have been perfectly lovely and perfectly nice. But you only remember the, the ones where terrible things happened. And then they instantly become funny as soon as they're as soon as they're done. As soon as you're out the other end of them, then they turn into an you know an anecdote you can hang on for the rest of your life. And my mother loved that. She her eyes would actually light up when things went terribly wrong because she'd think, "Oh yes, I'll get a story out of this." I mean, re- really, she should have. There's, there's no doubt in my mind that that she could have been a professional writer. And she probably would have, you know, she would have been a great author. She would have written incredible books. What do you think Brenda would have made of the book then? From what you said, I'm assuming she'd love being in the limelight, being the centre of attention, having a photo on the cover. And and she does look like Julie Christie. Or she did look like when she was young. She was very much like Julie Christie. Yeah, she was very, very beautiful. Yeah. How how would she feel about the mental health side of things? It's, you know, it's this actually genuinely still haunts me because the 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 child in me is that is still obviously terrified of my mother is carries that terror of of the fury and the anger that she would feel about secret being revealed because it was a big thing big 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 huge massive thing was that you don't tell anyone you don't talk about this this is a secret and no one's allowed to know but then the adult me sort of thinks well you know what she doesn't come across badly in this book even though she she I I reveal some some terrible things that (laughs) that she did and said and etc but I think I I've really tried to present her as fairly as possible and certainly what's coming back is that the response to her from people who have read the book is that is that they wish they'd known her Aww. and that they wish they'd met her and 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 hung out with her because she was amazing she was amazing yeah. but i mean my my mother went again when tent the bucket and me came out she went and stood next to it in waterstones <laughs> and waited until people took it off the shelf and then said, oh, hello, I'm Brenda from the Tent, the Pocket and Me. Would you like me to sign that? 
So, you know, I think there, there, there is definitely a big part of her that would have really loved it. But I, but I think actually the main thing for her would have been the fact that her letters were published mm. so that she could have said, I'm now a published author. Definitely. So I'm, I, so I'm really happy that that has that I've been able to make that happen for her because because the interesting thing about the letters is that a lot of them I had never seen before, but some of them I had, which means that she found them in my house when I didn't wasn't watching her, and took them back. What before you'd read them? No, I would. She would have sent them to me, and I would have read them. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But then she found that I, well, you know, they would have been kept in a drawer or whatever, and she took them back. And I think what that was about was that that was her work. Those letters were her work. Yeah. So that's another added bonus for me that you know, she's she she was published. Oh, well, I, actually, I think, yeah, I agree. I, you feel ashamed of not doing anything about your mum's mental yeah. illness when she was alive. I mean, I kind of, that's a generational thing, isn't it? We just yeah. sort of didn't talk about all that kind of stuff when yeah. we were growing up in the olden days. Do you think that things have changed? Do you think things have changed now? Oh, massively so. Massively so. You know, we're able to, to now openly discuss mental health in a way that, that my mother's generation just weren't and I think a lot of the stigma around mental health has now been removed um and I think that's a good thing not just for obviously people who are now suffering with mental health but also the children of people who are Mm. suffering with mental health because certainly when I was little um I felt very isolated I had no idea that anybody else was going through what I was going through. And if I'd known even one other person was going through what I was going through, I would have felt better about it. And I think that that's really important, that it's it's not just about making it okay for people with mental health to talk about what they're experiencing, but also to make sure that there is adequate support in place for children who do not understand that what that their parents and I will I will use this this phrase because this is what I came to discover about my mother is that my mother was not awful she was ill and that is a huge 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 distinction um and I sort of wasted my 20s with my mother because I was so resentful of my childhood with her because it had been really difficult and I can't dress that up it was really hard and I didn't understand really until into my 30s that that again I come back to it she wasn't awful she was ill and once I had made that distinction in my head my my relationship with her improved dramatically because you said you know you had you did have like a a really close relationship yeah, with you. Yeah. Because kind of like she threw garden parties for all your yeah. uni, uni yeah. mates. We, and... we, we were really good mates. You know, the, this is this was the thing, is that uh, we, we got on really, really well. And, uh, and I keep coming back to the good Brenda was so good that when she was, you know, being the sparkling version of herself, you genuinely wouldn't wouldn't want to be with anybody else she was absolutely hilarious i i still to this day i i i don't i I don't know anyone who i would make me laugh as much as she did and i really and i really miss her i really really miss her i really miss her energy and i and i also sort of very much appreciate now what she brought to our family like me, me and my dad we we get on very well um but he's he's a very quiet gentle man and i really miss the energy that my mother brought obviously sort of like like you mentioned that in your 20 you know you had to have you, had, you got to the point where you needed a bit of distance yeah, I did, yeah. from yeah Brenda. How did how did that go down with with Brenda? Well, I, it was sort it sort of coincided really with 
her giving up on me a bit. I think we just lost interest in each other for a while. You know, it, it when when I when I went to university, she was obviously thrilled with all of that. So, you know, she very much enjoyed that. And then when I decided I was going to be a lawyer, she she enjoyed that bit as well. But when I packed in being a lawyer, it it was sort of like a, a an Amish style shunning, really. But I can understand it because, you know, she came from a very, very, very poor background and had to drag herself up uh, and out in order to make something of her life. And I suppose she looked at me and thought, well, you know, you got yourself to one of the best universities in the world. You got a, you then subsequently got another another degree in law and became a qualified lawyer you have got every single chance that I would have given my my you know back teeth for and you're binning it Um, and for and for what because you think you're gonna be a a writer I mean obviously you know I did it, it turned out okay in the end that that one but at the time you know it didn't and um, there was no indication that, that it would. And I think, I suppose the, the best word I can come up with is disdain. She just had disdain <laughs> for, for my life choices. But it, but it also coincided with her having a, her second affair. So I think, she, you know, her attentions were elsewhere, to be honest. Was it her having cancer that brought you back together? Yes, her, her having cancer was uh, the the really binding catalyst for all of us becoming really intensely close. And um, and interestingly, I mean, the, the first time she had cancer was absolutely horrendous. It was horrendous. Uh, and not because of the illness, it was because of her mental health when she first got cancer. Because, I mean, I, I sat in a, in a, in a small office with an oncologist and had to listen to my mother telling him that she'd been given cancer by a CIA operative in a bookshop in Cambridge. And none of us batted an eyelid. Well, you know, well, dad and I, you know, this is, this was, this was our normal. We were so used to, you know, for want of a better word, crazy Brenda, that it was just, oh yeah, this is just another one of her eccentricities. She's, she's, you know, blah blah blah. Whereas it, I look back at that and I think that is so disturbing, and nobody did anything about that. And she refused um, to have chemotherapy. She refused to take the medicine that she was supposed to take after she'd had the very small uh, lumpectomy. She wouldn't have a mastectomy. Um, she wouldn't have any of the big the big treatments um, that the Royal Marsden wanted her to have simply because she genuinely believed that this was all a plot between my father and myself in the hospital to kill her. And if she had had those things first time round, she'd still be alive today. So I, I can absolutely point to her mental health and say that's the reason she's dead. Because you spoke to mental health experts as part of the research yeah. for your book. Yeah. Um, and like, the psychiatrist's letter and the epilogue, I mean, that it's is... amazing, that is, it? It's, it's, it's absolutely amazing, and it's so it's so moving. Mm. I mean, I was in tears reading it. Mm. How, did you, how did you find it when, when you received it? It was like the clouds parting, because I can't... I can't begin to express to you how heavy the question hung over me about whether or not we just imagined it and whether she really had had an undiagnosed mental illness. Um, and also it was really important to me because it, it, if if she wasn't unwell, then it just meant she was awful but she wasn't awful, she was ill. And that was really important for me, really massively so, um, because it's, I think it's, it's, I loved her so, so much. And, and this is going to sound sort of quite 
out there but it's like it was really important me for me to know that that the person who I had loved that intensely deserved it and she did you know and and she did she did deserve it she wasn't a she was misunderstood in her lifetime that's what she was and that that just in and of itself makes me very sad and it makes me very sad that that nothing was ever done for her in her lifetime because if she had if she had been able to be under a psychiatrist's care or had even just been given the right medication to get her through life then her life would have been very very different and so would my dad yeah and yours as well when you were yes. young yeah one of the things i wanted to ask she was we are rubbish at dealing with death and grief in this country I'm wondering what has helped has one has writing the book helped you to come to terms yes. with Brenda's death, but also what advice would you give to others? Well, I think in the in the first instance, just allow yourself to be as sad as you need to be. That's the first thing. It's like it. I think I say it in the book that it became my superpower that I could have perfectly normal conversations with people while crying. And it sort of just got to the point where I didn't even care I was crying. And it it just didn't bother me that I was crying. It was like my body had to get it out. And I cried for 11 days straight. I mean, obviously, bear in mind, I'd had a lot of preparation for, for what was coming. But it still, I found the last day profoundly shocking and awful. But from that point, I, I cried pretty much constantly for 11 days. And then it was like my body just said, OK, you've got it out. Just you can stop now. You can stop this phase. This phase is now over. Uh, to the point that I didn't actually cry on the day of her funeral. It was like my, my body had just gone, right, that, that, that section of, of, of of grief is is now concluded and now you're going to enter into the next phase which is guilt and 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 sort of and mild despair and a sense of terrible sort of emptiness because this huge influence in your life is now gone but also relief relief that 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 this uh, I, I call her she was my greatest light and, and my heaviest burden that the burden of Brenda was gone. And I think my dad felt that the most keenly because certainly for he, he was her primary carer for the last 10 years. Um, but, I mean, really, he was her primary carer from the moment he married her, to be honest. Um, and I think he didn't know what to do with himself for a very long time. And what's interesting now about him is he just wants no responsibility whatsoever, none. And he will just do what he wants to do now, and that's it. And I don't begrudge him that at all. Does he still travel? No, not really. He, um, I mean, he is getting on a bit, and he he did have a girlfriend, but he no longer has a girlfriend. So I, I think sort of they they went they went away a couple of times. They had a couple of. Uh, uh, abroad trips but I'm I, I don't know I don't I can't really see him going now I think he'll he'll you know he's he's very happy going to the football on Saturdays and, and who does it who does he support Stephen Jeff C and uh, he'll go on the odd coach trip and and day oh. trip with U3A he's he, he's part of U3A oh yeah which he very much enjoys um, and I think, you know, that's it. He's, he has settled into a very simple life. So the exact opposite of, of what he had with my mother. So menopause gets a mention yeah. and how it affected your mum. Mm. Um, I did laugh when, you, <laughs> of course, a, a kind of your dad says she stopped having affairs when yes. her vagina her dried vagina up. vagina dried up, yes. Yeah, so, so she stopped playing away. Also, yes. I just remembered when you said she actually... One of the men she had an affair with actually went on holiday with your yes. mum and dad. Yes, which I didn't know. I I had no idea about this until dad told me when I was researching the book, and I was like, I was incredulous. It's just the absolute brass of the woman. 
Yeah. You pulled it. And it's unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. And I kept, I did, that was actually one, one of the big things for me is that I kept saying to him, you know, how, why did you stay with her? Because I would, you know, I don't know anyone who would have stayed with her. And he just, he just loved her. He, oh. ju he just loved her and he just accepted, he'd obviously just accepted pretty early on that, that one bloke was never going to be enough for her. And I suppose that's sort of born out of the fact that they were, you know, that they were getting together at the end of the 60s and, and, the, and the, set, the 70s was such a weird decade. And it was, there, there, there genuinely was a sense of, in the 70s, that it, you know, that, that, that sexual liberation was a free-for-all. And if, if you were young and you wanted to have sex with people, then that was fine. It didn't matter if you were married. And that you, there was a real sort of sense of, well, you know, why, why are you kicking up a fuss if I'm having an affair? It's only sex. It was sort of crazy. It's a really weird decade, the seventies. But I, I think it sort of stemmed from that, really. You say in your book, you say kind of like how how the menopause affected your mum, and because she was already yeah, yeah. had mental health issues, and this really she, was. I, I think that was when the, the the worst of her paranoia really properly kicked in, and um, and she became absolutely obsessed with um some her neighbors um she thought her phone was bugged um it was just layer upon layer upon layer of of paranoia really kicked in so yeah so it, so it was i mean really it, it, I, I think her mental health her, her mental health was born from stuff that happened to her when she was a child no doubt about that um, she may well have had a, something that, that was, you know, there was nothing to be done about in terms of, you know, nature, nurture. Um, but she had postnatal depression when she had me and then the menopause really hit her hard. And, and all these things happened to her at times when absolutely none of these things uh, were ever discussed. I mean, she tried to commit suicide when she was 11 and you think to yourself now, if that happened now, you had an 11-year-old who tried to kill themselves, they would immediately be looked after and, 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 and be dealt with by medical professionals, etc. Nothing like that happened to my mother. I, I, I asked her once, I said, you know, because she would occasionally tell the story about, and, and she would tell it like it was hilarious that she tried to kill herself when she was 11. She threw herself out of an upstairs window of a house. And um, and I asked her, you know, did anyone did anyone send you to see the doctor or anything? She said no. She was just sent for a, given a bit of cake by her aunt. That was it. That was it. And and never dis and never discussed again. And then of course, when she had postnatal depression, that was in 1967. So there was nothing in place for that then. And menopause, same again. We're only just really starting to 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 treat menopause seriously now mm. but yeah that conversation around menopause that's happening now is really important isn't it yeah, yeah massively so how's your menopause well, I, been I'm out, I'm, <laughs> I'm out the other end I was I for about two years I had all the normal stuff you know the 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 uncontrollable hot flushes I mean, it got to the point, it got to the, I remember I was having a very important meeting uh, with Robbie Williams, of all people, oh. <laughs> uh, and Robbie Williams' people about a, a project might have happened. And uh, it was the first time I'd ever met him or, or them or anything like that. I went to a very posh hotel, a really posh hotel in London uh, for it, and sat down. And within five minutes, I thought, oh, no, here we go, hot flush akimbo. And, and this was when my hot flushes were proper, not just feeling hot, but pouring with sweat. But I was so deep into the menopause at that point that I didn't care. And so I just literally picked up a paper napkin and stuck it to my forehead and left it there <laughs> until it was done. With no word of an explanation. 
I didn't even I didn't even explain it. It was just no. I'm going to sit here with a paper napkin stuck to my forehead now until I finish speaking. But um, so I had that. I had night sweats. Those were the, those were the things that I found. I found those quite upsetting actually because I, I I find if I don't sleep well then it really bothers me. But I found these brilliant cool pads that you that you put in your freezer, and then you slip them. I would slip. I had two of them, and I would slip one. I'd sit them either side of my pillow, inside my pillowcase, and then I'd have, and then halfway through the night, you'd turn it over, and it it would be like really lovely and cool. And those made a massive, massive, massive difference. But I'm out the other end. I didn't, I didn't take HRT, and I don't want to take HRT. My reasoning for that is you've got to come off HRT at some point, and so you're just putting it off. So I'm out, I'm out the other end. Because I'm on HRT, I'm on HRT, and I kind of like keep trying. I keep trying to come off. I mean, I try to come off during lockdown. Probably not the best time to do it in the middle of a global health pandemic. And then I sort of like started feeling really angry and all the yeah hot flushes and all that malarkey again. And I just thought, oh, God, just please. I do it again later, but then I agree. I kind of feel like now I'm a bit like I just need to sort of do. I just need to do it, and you know, get it, get it over with, and you're like, yeah. That was my attitude. You, if you're on HRT at some point, you have got to come off it, and then that's then then you start the menopause. Yeah. Uh, so I've just got it out the way. But also another thing that has massively helped, but but this, th- but this is sort of an un- an unconnected thing happened, but it has massively improved everything to do with with menopause symptoms. Um, was that last year? in may and and i and i talk about this now because we're we're passing it's out of it and i am no longer in any danger of becoming a pin-up for the worst people in the world but i had a catastrophic reaction to my second astrazeneca vaccine and i developed uh ophthalmic nerve shingles and i was ill for six months and the shingles turned into very severe asthma and I had to learn to breathe again I was I I had to be sent to a pulmonary physio and I had to learn to breathe again and then at the end of last year after I'd been with the pulmonary physio for about a month she said to me okay now you're gonna have to um start an exercise program and and you need to find one that's you know quite full on and you need to properly commit to it and 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 things will start to improve for you and so in January I found an exercise program called uh, the six-pack revolution and I had no intention of getting myself a six-pack but it was just but it was it was a 75-day exercise program and I liked the sound of it because it was a specific time frame and I knew that there was an end point. And that has completely changed my life. Completely and utterly changed my life. Um, I've given up drinking, which has made a massive difference in terms of sleep and every, every other problem that was associated with menopause. And, I, and trust me, I loved wine. I absolutely loved it. But at the moment, I genuinely can't, I can't imagine a scenario where I would want to drink again. And I never thought I would say that ever in a million years. And I never had a problem with alcohol. I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't on the verge of being an alcoholic. But I, I enjoyed a drink of wine. I loved a glass of wine. But it's the benefits of not drinking are just so outweigh everything that was associated with drinking and also i've I found really good non-alternative um drinks now and it is that you know that feeling like it's six o'clock i finish work i deserve a drink now or the sun is shining let's go sit in the garden blah 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 i deserve a drink now that is just i've discovered is just a state of mind and i have uh, i now get that exact same feeling with the non-alcoholic drink that I now have instead of wine. 
And it's that has really fascinated me, that it's the mental connection you make with whatever it is you've, you're telling yourself is your treat. Yeah. So, so, so all those things sort of combined and I've, I've sort of feel the best I've felt in 20 years, to be honest. Fantastic. So have you got a six pack? <laughs> I, I've <laughs> almost got a six pack. Woo! If you go on Twitter, I, I will have occasionally posted my day one and day 75 photo. I think um, I've seen that. It's, it's, <laughs> it's mind-blowing. Yeah. I mean, I never in a million years, given where I was starting from, you know, I, I was at absolute physical rock bottom when on day one of that program. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this. And trust me, if I can do it, anyone can do it. So what do you, what do, you do then? Is it running? Well, is it weights? No, it... it's, it's a really clever, graded um, exercise program. So in week one, uh, they have these things called daily. So you have to exercise six days a week and you get one day off. And they have these things that are called daily. So in week one, you start with, you have to do 10 push-ups and you have to do 10 glute exercises and you do a range of, of ab exercises. And on day one, you can't do 10 push-ups. I mean, you, you, like, you, like you really cannot do 10 push-ups on day one and you think that this isn't going to work. And by the end of the week, you can do 10 push-ups. And then in week two, you have to do 20 push-ups. And at the beginning of week two, you can't do 20 push-ups. But by the end of week two, you can do 20 push-ups. And that continues for 11 weeks until you're doing 110. A day? Yeah. All at once? Yeah. Flying. And on day one, you think there is – I honestly thought, well, it's, it's impossible. There's absolutely no way I'm going to be able to do 110 push-ups by the end of this. And you blinking well can. And so it's so it's that so it's like the, the, it just gradually you're gradually getting stronger 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 stronger, um, and then twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays they give you a a, a physical challenge, and those the, the, so that's about twenty minutes long, and those are generally sort of HIIT circuit training, but it's all um, uh, functional strength, so. I didn't. You, I didn't have to go to a gym once. I, you can do it all, Is it all online. Yeah, yeah, it's all online. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. It's really good. It's a really, really good program. And I'm, I'm currently helping or supporting some friends who are, are doing it now. And there's no weighing. You, you, you don't weigh yourself. Oh, that's good. You, yeah. If you want to, they say you can weigh yourself on day one and at day seventy-five. If you want to, but what you have to do is you have to take a photograph of yourself once a week. And at the beginning, when you start, you think, this is the worst thing I can imagine. And I am never going to let anybody see this photo of myself as long as I live. And then you start, and then you start seeing yourself get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And next thing you know, and, you're sharing it on Twitter. And ne <laughs> next thing you know, honestly, now I will show my day one and day 75 photo to anyone who cares to listen. I actually showed it to a cab driver <laughs> a few weeks ago. Uh, I mean, it's, it's bonkers. And then he, he, he then... He then tweeted me to say he had signed up to do Six Pack Revolution oh, based on that photo and the conversation we had. But honest, honestly, I can't recommend it enough. It's given me my life back. It really genuinely has. Also, the thing, that's what we need to do as we are getting older as well, isn't it? We de I definitely need to build up some strength before my, before my muscles wither away. Go and have a look at their... Uh, at their website and look at their transformation pictures. You will not believe your eyes. Okay, will do. <laughs> <laughs> now, I want to ask you, you mentioned so you trained as a lawyer. Yeah. You also worked with Keir Stoffer. I did, yes. What's he like then? When, when, when I was a, a young pup lawyer um, and he was a very exciting barrister. Oh. Um, he was fantastic. He is 
still to this day one of the most impressive people I've ever met in my life. And it, it's quite it, it, it's quite interesting now to 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 watch him, and I'm slightly I understand why he people keep calling him boring, but he was the exact opposite of boring. Yeah. Um, and he was vibrant. He's very funny. Um, he's he's into good music. He's, yes, he likes. He's he likes really, he's really <laughs> engaging. He's incredibly yeah. charismatic. Um, and he's, do you know what? He's just a really good guy. And um, I, 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 I wouldn't even be remotely worried if he was became prime minister if anything i would be absolutely relieved he he's a, he's a grown up he's a grown up and he he is committed and he is a serious person and he he does his job properly and good grief that we've got to a point where somehow that's a bad thing talking of politicians uh, you were so you were at Oxford. Were you there yes. during the Bullingdon yeah, era? So you're we're because I'm. Kind of, I think we're a similar age, and so is the Prime Minister. Yeah, I was eighty-six to eighty-nine uh, at Oxford. In fact, I've just read a book called Chums that is literally about the time I was at Oxford because they were all there: Michael Gove, Cameron yeah. Johnson, Don, Dominic Raab came a bit after that. Daniel, Daniel Hannan. I remember them, and Jacob Rees-Mogg. I remember them, and and they were jokes. You're a prolific writer, a celebrity Master Chef winner. What drives you? Just working. I really like working. I don't think I'll ever ever want to stop working. I think that it. That's the thing, isn't it? Is that when you're creative, you just feel compelled to do it I like telling stories um I like I love writing I really love writing and I'm good at it it's like it, I always I think it's really important for everyone to work out the thing that they're good at you know I've done lots of things in my life I've you know I've been a lawyer I've been an actor I've been a presenter but the thing I'm good at is I'm really good at writing. So what's your next project then? My next project, well, it may very well be a, a TV comedy drama that I've co-written, which is seven-eighths greenlit. We're just waiting for the final bit of finance. And if that happens, then that will be the very next thing I do. And I've got a couple of other TV projects that are that are waiting to that there's sort of that, that that cuspy moment where they're either going to happen or they're not. So, um, but I've just finished doing a treatment for what I hope will be my next book. Fantastic! Can you say anything about it, or is it top secret? It's I I want to write, write a cozy crime book. Ooh. Well, I tell you for why, and this has been rattling around at the back of my brain ever since I wrote the Wilma Tenderfoot I wrote a series for children that were comedy crime thrillers uh, the Wilma Tenderfoot series and I absolutely loved writing those and I think sort of with my legal background as well and also now I'm a parish and now I'm a parish councillor oh it, you? yeah it was like all all these things are colliding and I just thought and I had and I suddenly had a really good idea for how to kill someone oh and um <laughs> and i thought and i just thought you know this has been staring me in the face ever since i finished the wilma tenderfoot stories i should be doing these for grown-ups so hopefully i will be doing these for grown-ups what's cozy crime cozy crime is like it's not like full-on crime novels like as in you know Ian Rankin or Val McDermott yeah. or Joe Nesbo, cozy crime is like Richard Richard Osman. Those sort of you know like yeah, that's Agatha Christie uh-huh. type stuff. Yeah. Oh, cool. So not gruesome, not gruesome, no. but you know it's they're they're more about the community. friendly neighbourhood friendly crime. neighbourhood crimes. 
Now, tell us about your dog, Poppy, the most excellent oh, no, beagle. She's, she's currently sitting in an urn on my desk in front of me. Oh, sorry. Didn't realise no, that. I, I give her a little pat every morning. Oh, it was that was quite. Uh, I mean, I've got. To, I have two other. I have two dogs that are alive. But but Poppy, the most excellent beagle, was was my first dog and and my very best dog. And your mum liked her. Oh as God, well. my mum just adored her. When it, and people who own dogs will will and who've lost dogs will will understand this. But when she died, I mean, obviously, I was absolutely heartbroken. But the thing I couldn't cope with was that Poppy always wanted to be where I was. And leaving her body at the vets just felt horrible to me, just really horrible because she wasn't where I was. And when I got her ashes and brought her home, I felt like so much better about everything so she so she's now with me on my desk I've got my hand on her now as I speak dear old pops now I'm going to ask you very quick these are supposed to be quick for anyway grown-up guide questions I ask them to all the guests so I'm exhausted how tired are you uh, well, currently today, I'm I'm not feeling at my greatest because I might have COVID as we speak. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Also, I'm thinking maybe you are a bit energized as well because you've been doing a six pack challenge. Yeah, I mean uh, th- th- that's the other thing. Like your 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 immune system goes through the roof. So even if I have got COVID, I'm hoping that it, it's it's just going to be a mild form of it. So. And how do you feel about getting older? I feel fine about it, actually. I've, that, that's something that has never really bothered me. As long as I'm healthy, then I'm fine. What are you reading right now? I'm currently reading Graham Greene, The Heart of the Matter, because I, I decided a couple of months ago that I was going to reread all Graham Greene books. Um, oh. he's, he's the writer's writer. And if you've never read any Graham Greene, um, then I would recommend starting with The End of the Affair, which is an absolute masterpiece. And what are you watching on telly? Love Island. Are you you're not watching Are you watching Sherwood? No, people, people <gasps> keep saying to me, have you watched Sherwood? No, I'm, I'm watching Love Island, thank you. Which I'm obs- obsessively texting about with Dawn French on a nightly basis. Yes, <laughs> it's my guilty pleasure. Really, I've never seen. I've never watched. Oh Hawaii. God, it, it's well, it's dreadful. It's absolutely <laughs> shockingly dreadful. But it's like it's sort of like Big Brother in, in the sense that it's absolutely meaningless and yet really important it's like suddenly (laughs) suddenly things become more important than life itself watching it it's crazy okay favorite what's your favorite food or drink i'm thinking that kind of because you've been on masterchef that you might be an amazing cook but you know what i'm gonna keep this simple i still think my favorite food is a properly a proper proper lemon and and garlic roasted chicken i love roast chicken like with really crispy skin absolutely flipping you can't go wrong with that but i also like very lightly smoked salmon fillets with ginger rice and tender stem broccoli and things like that 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 that'll do for me okay talk me through your outfit i'll I'll start bottom to top i'm wearing um some adidas sliders Mm -hmm. I'm wearing some blue shorts and I'm wearing a bright blue Adidas um, hoodie. So quite sporty. Quite sporty now, yeah. Mm. I mean, I'm practically an Olympian. (laughs) Um, And what what are your favourite feel-good clothes, like the things that you feel like this is a real real Emma look? Oh, okay. A real Emma Emma look would be three-quarter length trousers some Converse trainers, mm-hmm. and an, a really lovely top from Poetry. That linen, linen-y top with pockets, smocky thing. That's, that's me. Poetry. Just basically go, go, and, look, go and look at Poetry website. Yeah. Anything on there, that's, that's, that's a classic me outfit. 
Mm-hmm. And so I can't wear Converse anymore. They're just too flat now for my old lady feet. Well, I've I've never worn heels ever because uh, I can't do them and I've never been able to do them. So I'm I'm very happy in a flat shoe. Yeah, oh, I love a brogue. What would you say is your style signifier? Is there something that you all you know that people instantly recognise when they you know again that they think it's very you? It's probably my glasses and probably the colour blue. It's like I think everything I own is in blue. Finally, what's the single most important piece of advice you've ever been given? Never give up. Oh, you say that in your book, mm. don't you? Yeah, never give up. Would you say regarding that kind of regarding your career? Uh, I would say to, with regard everything, to be honest. The full piece of advice I was ever given was, was giving up is easy. Anybody can do it. Yes. Never give up. And I think it's really important that you set yourself goals and you flip and stick to them. And you know what? You'll fail. And then you'll pick yourself up and you'll try again and you'll fail a bit better and you'll fail a bit better again and then mm. you'll get there. But nothing worth nothing worth a damn is going to be easy. And yeah. you should never expect anything to be easy. And just because it's not easy doesn't mean you give up in the pursuit yeah. of it. Imagine it, feel it, receive it, never give up. Oh, I love that. Imagine it, feel it, receive it, yeah. never give up. That's a great mantra. Yeah. Great. Oh, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. That is a brilliant place to end. Thank you so much, Emma. My and, I, and I hope you and your wife are okay and COVID isn't too horrendous for you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed the interview. Please come back soon. And it'd be absolutely brilliant if you could review the podcast on iTunes and also on that'snotmyage.com. I know that sounds like a lot, but I would appreciate it very much. And don't forget, it's not about age, it's about style.